Kamatandela mastabatel to baskwa mgel. Man bulise ayan bulise na ba kutwa elu nga balaleli. Aba pula puli buri. Aba laleli, aba pula puli, ilaisteraz. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Please, uh, pardon my Africans there. I don't know uh, what uh, a listener is in Africans, but most of us is Zilaisteraz. I don't know if you are going to Europe because Andile says he's going to Europe, and I said to him he can afford priority, you know. He can afford a direct flight to Heathrow. He can afford, you know, a direct flight to Schiphol, uh, you know, out there in Amsterdam. Manga mane tubeleze, mane kwela, figure adis, apinda ye Dubai, apinda ye PPP. You know, because he might lose his luggage or he might get his ca- connecting flights cancelled and so on. Uh, and it seemed a lot of this having to do, I guess, with the decisions that the aviation sector had to make uh, as a result of the travel restrictions. Yeah, an interesting story, though, Aya, right? Especially in the context of, you know, uh, one in South Africa we're dealing with high levels of unemployment, but in Europe, seemingly, that's not a significant issue. Yeah, so um, the story coming in is that uh, major airports throughout uh, Europe have been uh, sort of plunged into chaos amidst the post-lockdown travel boom. That's resulted in a lot of delays, cancellations, as well as lost luggage, as you mentioned there. And, um the, back, the background is on, onto it, right? We had sort of the lockdown. There was um, almost a, a complete standstill in terms of people moving around, flying around. So the aviation industry uh, laid off a, a lot of people, retrenched a lot of staff. And um, post the pandemic now, there's sort of a boom with people traveling around, moving around. There is also stats coming in that uh, interest from even South Africans to travel to Europe has increased quite significantly. So it seems like the aviation industry is really struggling to fill up those posts, so a lot of the airports are understaffed from just a, a luggage perspective. So a lot of people are standing in lines, they're losing luggage, they're having their connecting flights cancelled. You know, some of the state data that was there, stats that are coming in are also quite interesting. You know, Heathrow is one of the biggest problems. Um, Brussels Airport, uh, 72% of their flights have been delayed. Uh, Germany as well, 68% of their flights have been delayed. You're looking at about 8% that have been cancelled. So it seems like it's quite um, quite a mess and they're not... Um, they're not able to fill up their posts uh, quickly with also uh, also adding to those rules is the fact that current staff that are employed are also just striking, complaining, working conditions. So really airports in Europe are seemingly feeling it right now. And of course, a lot of this, I guess, as you say, having a lot to do with um, the response of the workers themselves, the response of the firms, laying off people, reducing wages, largely because nobody was flying. Um, and I can only imagine, I mean, you know, what implication upstream, just take the leasing of aircraft as an example. Yeah. I mean, I remember watching a documentary of like a graveyard of planes, right? Where you find all of these planes that have been leased over a long period of time. And that's where they go and get dumped, apparently, somewhere in Chicago. Um, and there were planes there that even SAA had leased at some stage. And when the pandemic started, it just seemed all of those lease agreements, everybody was trying to get out of them. Yeah. But nobody expected that this surge would follow and that all of this pent-up demand uh, would, I guess, lead to a very constrained and very difficult summer. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think again, it's, it's around that projection. Right? No one actually uh, thought that post-pandemic would have this. I imagine also the... the, 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 the you know, the, the aviation industry was also in a difficult position because, you know, the world literally came to a standstill. And no one was flying around, no one was moving around. So to an extent, you understand the response of laying people off, trying to restructure. 
but um, yeah, it's 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 caught them now, right? Um, that they're not able to 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 bring in people. I mean, and as you mentioned, the impact on the leasing. Um, first, during the the, the 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 pandemic, where a lot of these lease agreements were were will probably be cancelled, and people looking at different ways in which to you know to apply for major. Um, but now, you know, with this boom, you know, hopefully, you know, a lot of people have gone back to continue leasing those particular planes. But seemingly now, there's not enough people to be able to operate those particular planes, although the customers are there. So, I mean, I think it's an interesting one. Maybe it also presents an opportunity, Aya, where, you know, we might have people from different um, types of different countries, particularly the developing world, maybe moving into the first world countries to assist with this um, these backlogs. You know, maybe it does open to a certain extent, um, opportunities. But I, I think for me, one of the key things was the fact that even existing staff are actually striking and complaining about current working conditions, which probably just then adds into this entire pressure. And uh, I think also airlines or the aviation industry as a whole just needs to reflect on that. You know, if people, the current employees are complaining, you know, it's going to make it even more difficult to recruit more into into that particular space. But a warning has been said that, you know, people that are planning to travel into Europe um, over the next couple of months should... Uh, potentially hold it off until at least after September. Yeah, I man, just go just go to the Eastern Cape or something. Yeah, 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 you know, on the continent, there are many beautiful places. I mean, exactly. The coastline, Eastern coastline. There's an opportunity for people to travel yes. within within the continent, you know, but Europe right now is not is not looking good. I know US as well has got significant backlogs from a visa application perspective. Mm. So maybe there's actually a, an opportunity for African tourism to begin to, to, to enter the fold, you know, um, and yeah, maybe hopefully the different uh, tourist departments uh, within these countries are, you know, are looking at this opportunity and thinking maybe it's, it's, it's about time that we improve and uh, promote African travel. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And uh, I mean, I do think that uh, in many ways it foretells a particular story, because we are also approaching summer here uh, in the Southern Hemisphere. And one wonders for tourism destinations like South Africa, you know, and other parts in the Southern Hemisphere, whether or not we might find ourselves in the same fix in the next few months. Especially locally, um, mm. I, uh, you know, considering as well, you know, uh, having come air now, going through what they're going through, we've seen the price surges uh, in the domestic market. And, you know, the question then must be asked, the current um, airline companies, do they have enough capacity or do you need to be able to respond to the increased demand, of course, which is pushed by the fact that com air is no longer there, which was, I think, accounting for about 40% of, 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 of the flights. So, you know, it, we might also find ourselves in a similar situation and hopefully this sends alarm bells um, to, to, to the South African aviation industry to, to sort of prepare for that. You know, if we're going to have an influx of people coming in from outside and also people traveling uh, domestically, you know, we need to make sure that we, 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 we actually prepare for that. And again, it's going to be a balancing act, right, because you don't want to take on too many people on your payroll and then the demand doesn't come in and then you're sitting in a mm. bit of a difficult position. But I think it's an opportunity for the strategic minds to begin to apply themselves. Those that move, uh, you know, and are able to take advantage of it are probably going to see significant returns. Yeah, yeah. Let's shift attention away, I guess, uh, from that particular one and uh, take a look at uh, this issue, financial graylisting. Um, I mean, what is financial graylisting and why is this such a major risk? To the point where even one of the CEOs of the major banks, Sim Chabalala, says, hey, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, if you think a downgrade is bad, uh, think about grade listing. 
Yeah, it was it was interesting as well. And uh, I mean, on my side, I I'd never really heard of this term. Um, but yeah, from 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 what from what we can gather, it um, basically relates to the fact that South Africa has uh, certain shortcomings in its ability to prevent financial crimes, uh, which uh, basically was outlined in this report that was um, which, which was um, just um, re- sorry released by the by the financial task which is an intergovernmental body uh, based in Paris, which assesses the country's ability to combat illicit financial activity. So basically what they're saying is that South Africa um, is, 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 is not able to, to, to meet the requirements or be able to benchmark recommendations, which is about 40, uh, and it found that South Africa is compliant on only three of those. Um, you know, So we've got non-compliance in five, we've got, we are partially compliant with 15 and largely compliant with 17. But uh, which, uh, if we aren't able to actually uh, start being compliant and there's certain timelines that have been put in place and certain deadlines, we would actually then be financially grey-listed. Um, and Sim Chabalala came out, the CEO of Sonat Bank, saying that the consequences of being grey-listed are far worse than the downgrading, you know, stating that the rent would weaken, the inflation will spike, interest rates will go up, and uh, basically everything would become expensive. You know, we're already seeing food prices surging, petrol prices surging. So, yeah, he's just uh, really play, painting a gloomy picture in case we were to be able to do this. But uh, uh, there are mean steps that can be taken for us to actually to avoid this. Um, and the first one, uh, you know, we've been given a deadline uh, of uh, October 2022 to address three of the benchmarks, um, 40 benchmark recommendations, which are terrorist financing, customer due diligence, as well as reporting suspicious transactions. And I think the biggest story here or the bigger worry is the fact that you know as a country you know we aren't able to demonstrate that we are able to 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 you know to 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 cover out uh, illicit financial trading uh, or illicit financial transaction which is more worrying right um and maybe if we're not even able to to comply you know uh, to what extent are we seeing this happening and how many people are actually getting away with it but um yeah so that's been given deadlines uh sim is raising the alarm bell, saying that this would be much, much worse than the downgrade. And, um, you know, he does come out to say, though, that government and um, the cabinet do know what to do and uh, that we uh, can actually salvage the situation and avoid being very useless. But if, but if um, we don't have frameworks to deal with money laundering, then why do we have FICA? Um, you know, or I guess the Financial Intelligence Center. I mean, surely this, this would be in their domain. Yeah, it, it it would, you know, um, it, it would, and I mean, I think maybe it's it, it's a simple, like 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 it, like I said, I right. It's you you've got three that are non-compliant out of the forty, right? Uh, well, mm. three five that are non-compliant. Some are partially compliant, some are largely compliant, you know. So I suppose it's a matter of just making sure that uh, according to those recommendations and the benchmarks that are there, we actually are compliant fully, you know. So maybe one could argue that out of the forty, you know, seventeen, fifteen are. Uh, you know, partly compliant, largely compliant. So a majority of it, there is a bit of compliance. It's a matter of just closing those gaps that might be there. And I think you're right in pointing out that there are regulatory bodies um, who, 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 who are there and mandated to be able to deal with some of these things. Mm. And I suppose it's, it's, it's highlighting that there are gaps, you know, and we need to find a way to strengthen these gaps. And I mean, October 2022 is right here. You know, and if we don't move very quickly, we might find ourselves in a, in a, in a difficult um, situation. Yeah. And we would join a, a couple of nations, you know, Albania, Burkina Faso, South Sudan, Syria, Pakistan. I mean, talk about Pakistan, the situation there right now is quite bad. And hopefully, you know, we, it, it, we wouldn't follow, we wouldn't mm. follow suit. 
you know some of the, some of these things might come across as mundane or like esoteric or whatever but i can assure you you know when somebody explained to me how ratings downgrades impact index funds for like a very liquid uh liquid traded sort of bonds and so on for us here in south africa um and since the downgrades i mean we've seen consistently uh, our sovereign you know um sort of bond yields hovering in territory that uh, is certainly much higher than where they would have been mm. prior to that um and that's because certain indexes you know if you're grey listed or if you downgraded won't invest in either equities bonds or even your currency um in their indexes or in tracker funds and so on and uh, so so it it might come across as very esoteric but um you know if people ask what does it mean for the price of bread what well, it means you're probably going to be paying a lot more if this happens yeah yeah i think i think that's that's exactly it uh, you know we can we can have all these terms and 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 sometimes terminology that people don't you know wouldn't be able to really grasp but what it actually essentially means is that it would be more expensive to buy everything food mm. petrol buy homes buy cars and you know so so it just shows the extent you know and already people are complaining and i mean i mean we probably all complaining about you know the 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 current fuel price you know if we're already seeing it around 27 grand so if we were to go this direction it would actually worsen you know so you know, for me and I, and I and i echo the words of 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 Sim, you know we need to the country can't afford that right now mm. you know with our higher unemployment with just disposable income shrinking you know so it it it, it hopefully is something that rings the alarm bells uh, to those that are responsible and uh, you know we're putting together teams of people that are going to be specifically tasked with ensuring that uh, we avoid this at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, Mdaka you know, last week sometime, uh, I think I was speaking to Marco Masilela, and uh, we are talking about some of the shifts that had been made and amendments to Regulation 28, which gives some guidance, but also serves, I guess, as a risk management measure for those who allocate the monies that you and I put into our pensions every month. And one of the things, I guess, in the political space um, that a lot of people have been talking about is this issue of prescription. Uh, because in a way, I mean, Regulation 28 is a form of prescription. Whether or not it's saying to people, you know, um, whether it's saying, sorry about that, whether it's saying to people at the level of like the barrel of a gun or whatever that put your money here is something entirely different. But it is a form of prescription. Now, Amakomani is out in Boxburg. Uh, for the F-15 National Conference. And one of the things, or National Congress, one of the things that is being said there, certainly by the outgoing General Secretary, is this need for prescribed assets. Um, what is this and why, I guess, is it coming back onto the agenda when we did hear, certainly from the governing party at some stage, that uh, they're not considering prescribed assets anytime soon? Yeah, so I mean, I think I, as as you sort of painted the context there, you know, it's it's more around Regulation 28 of the Pension Funds Act, uh, basically which sets out uh, the maximum level that pension funds and life insurers can hold in various asset classes, you know, such as government bonds, property, um, and I think this prescription issue is, is extremely political, right? Um, mm. And I mean, we've seen this coming up within you know the ruling party as well. Something that was rejected. It's something that you know, um, and, and I think at the time, um, uh, Minister Kondongwane was still uh, within the party ranks. Um, so it was something that really was rejected. So SAPC, uh, sorry, SAHCP, uh, Makumani have come out and saying that they want to push um, 
uh, ANC to put prescription of asset um, back back into the fold and back into the agenda, which would mean that you know um, certain pension funds would be invested in things like infrastructure, manufacturing, uh, in the, into those sectors, and that they would definitely be campaigning for that. Um, mm. So. I think for me, this is one of those those stories that, although there's a significant economic impact, it's more a political story more than more than anything. And it's going to be interesting what SACP actually do to 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 whether to enforce or to lobby or to campaign to to the ruling party. You know, we do understand the context of you know elections coming in 2024. We've got the national conference in in. in in December coming through as well, and whether this is also being used as some form of political leverage um, and how it's going to actually be realized. But we do know that the ruling party has previously rejected this and um, you know wouldn't want to proceed on, on on this particular fund. So I I don't know to what extent who, uh, SACP will actually be successful in campaigning for this. But yeah, it is something that um, they are calling for. You know, calling for strongly enough uh, with. Um, uh, the Secretary General, they are saying that, you know, they're not even going to entertain these boardroom talks and that they are going to make sure that the ANC listen. You know, I, f- I mean, I guess one of the elements here is, as I said earlier on, I mean, Regulation 28 is a form of prescription. Now, it might not be as hard a form of prescription as what the party is looking for here. But in many ways, um, I guess, you know, if, if there's anything one can read into this is that, you know, come December time for the governing party that all and any of the debates will all happen within the framework of Regulation 28. It's highly unlikely uh, that there might be a, a strong voice that says, say, all the pension funds must go into infrastructure, uh, least of all the pension funds of public sector workers, which are the largest on the continent. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's going to be interesting how it plays out, right? And I mean, I think coming from, from, from what the Secretary General was saying, right, is that they believe that more funds need to go into um, sort of uh, job-creating activities of the manufacturing sector, infrastructure sector, and saying that they want to take the money out of this bubble of the financial sector, you know. So I think a lot of the conversation is going to be centered around that, right? Currently, you know, the funds are allocate, uh, allowed to allocate about 45% of their assets into infrastructure. Um, you know, so I don't know if there's going to be room or willingness to say that let's do let's do, do more than that. And again, it's probably going to be you know, looking at the risk, because ultimately this is supposed to manage risk, you know, um, and 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 and, and, then, and it's going to, you know, the conversation is going to be mostly centered around that, you know, and uh, it's going to depend really on leverage and who's willing to, you know, to to to, to compromise to what an, to what extent. But um, yeah, it's, it's, for me, there's, a, it's, there's an extremely political uh, narrative um, that that is going on, and do, and we'll just have to, you know, see and wait, um, you know, what 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 actually comes out of this. Yeah, only time will tell. But uh, let's maybe shift to another very interesting story. And uh, I say it's interesting largely because, you know, we know um, that uh, here in South Africa and uh, probably a lot less than other countries which are our neighbors like Zambia, we produce quite a bit of copper. And uh, copper, very much a part of how we electrify everything Um, and the piping of that and so on. Uh, and a big part of this advance towards electric mobility and, of course, green energy as well. Uh, and it seems the anticipated doubling of demand for it by 2035 is certainly going to create a massive supply crunch. Um, and I think the folk out in Lusaka might be smiling at the prospect of this. Uh, what's happening here and what is the implication for us as a region? 
Yeah, so um, yeah, a new study actually released by uh, S&P Global, um, the founder, you stated there that uh, the demand for copper will double by 2035, um, and that will definitely begin to experience supply deficit. Um, and again, this is largely uh, driven by the fact that, you know, we're transitioning from a technology perspective. Things are sort of moving into more electric. You know, we've got an increase electric vehicles, you know, the charging infrastructure, solar PV. Uh, and all of this utilizes a significant amount of, of, of copper. I mean, just for example, with just an electric car, it uses double the amount of copper um, that would be used in a, in a, in a fuel-generated um, operating car. So, you know, it's again that, you know, as the world sort of transitions and technology improves, there's going to be, you know, this shift in balances. Um, and from what we understand, currently we don't, even the mining uh, capabilities is not going to be able to, to, to transition or move enough to be able to respond to this demand. But um, seemingly we're probably going to, 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 to get... Um, to, to, to get to a situation where there's a significant reduction or there's a significant deficit in terms of copper, which will also impact how we manufacture things, how mm. we actually electrify things, and it might even have a trickle-down effect to even the most basic of things. You know, so it's definitely something that needs um, to be monitored uh, quite closely and actually see how we'll be able to respond. I mean, I think in South Africa there are there are certain uh, mines uh, that could definitely be beginning to 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 to, to to, to take advantage of this, and I mean, you also mentioned, uh, you know, the, the, the mines out in Lusaka would also be taking advantage of this, mm. but this is a global problem, and it probably needs a, most, a, a global response, because what you might see is that even though you respond as a region, uh, you know, you'll have the sort of uh, the bigger countries um, just simply changing, um, you know, you know sort of buying all the supply, or, you know, it will end up into, into, into you know, potentially trade wars or, 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 or something like that. I mean, we, see, we saw it with the vaccines where uh, the first world countries were able to, you know, um, make sure that they get access beyond or before uh, the developing countries um, get access. But it, I think it needs an entire global response because copper is such an important um, uh, aspect of uh, a lot of how we actually electrify a lot of things. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a significant um, problem. And if we don't actually uh, respond, it will disrupt a lot of supply chains. And, um, yeah, it would also make it very difficult to actually achieve the climate change goals that um, we've set ourselves as a yeah. country as well as, uh, as the world at large. Yeah, I mean, look, all of this is future-looking. I think the reality we're faced with now is now I got so happy yeah. when I saw on the app, they were saying, yeah, no load shedding for the weekend. And then I was like, hey, there's a lot of time between now and There's a lot of time. Friday. Yeah, no, 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 Sunday. Because knowing these fellows, a lot can happen in a few hours. But just talking about electrification, Dagamatandela, we speak about a report from S&P Global. S&P Global came out yesterday saying that ESCOM might have to borrow an extra $45 billion just to buy diesel. Ask me, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I think I, I saw that story, you know, and it was also, you know, they mentioned for buying diesel, also this issue around the increases of in wages mm. that they need to borrow a bit more. 
Yeah, ESCOM is very frustrating because we've been having this conversation since 2008 now. You know, there's promises every year. We're going to address this. We're going to address this. But yeah, it seems like ESCOM might be, their dead woods are not going to be ending anytime soon if there's more borrowing that's needed um, mm. to, to purchase diesel. Now, my question is always, about who benefits when this diesel goes? You know, Pravin, Pravin said yesterday, um, or the day before, I think to Bloomberg, that there's a certain fuel and uh, diesel mafia and a coal mafia that is sabotaging ESCOM. Kake, you know, when people don't say who these people are and they speak about faceless, amorphous people, you know, I just get put off, man. Because, you know, that's always the question. If there's people that seek to benefit when we go through a certain crisis, right, and they've got significant power, you know, then, mm. you know, then it's reasonable to say they might start you know, making sure that they're sabotaged to ensure that they enrich themselves or whatever the organizations may be. And if people like the minister, right, are aware of these things, then surely they have a responsibility exactly. to disclose these things. At least not, if not to the public, to the right officials and the authorities to be able to disclose that. For me, you know, it's not enough to simply come out and say there's a certain mafia mm. that does A, B, C, D. You know, surely there's a responsibility then for you to come out and actually say who is this particular individual organization and what steps can be taken to actually prevent them because this sabotages the entire country, you exactly. know, and the effects of load sharing and these cuts are so significant, particularly to small businesses. You know, I mean, mm. stage six where you've got six hours a day where you're not actually operating or you don't have electricity and even alternative sources, right, you're going to have a generator. The cost implications, diesel is extremely expensive. So, I mean, I think it's for the for the minister to just mention things like that and not come out and actually state that the names of these individuals yeah. and organizations is unacceptable. We're not saying he should do it to the public because we understand there might be certain sensitivities around this. Mm. But surely we've got structures in South Africa that could be able to deal with this, you know. For me, so it's really unacceptable. Look, I, I mean, mean I, I can't yeah. it, it, it sounds exactly like what our former president used to say, would we and so on. I mean, like really, you know. I have a great weekend. I certainly hope the lights won't come off. No, thank you very much. Good afternoon. Market analyst, thank you very much for your time. Check this out. Business Wrap of the Day. The Business Wrap of the Day on Metro FM Talk. Yeah, we'll take a look at some of those voice notes. We're going to take a brief break now. But yeah, you're not talking about your psycho-emotional state of being. Uh, but uh, you're talking about existentially. The fact that indeed... Uh,